Last Lord's Day, we considered together the second commandment as it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. It's also found in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. Turn with me, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 5, and let us read the second commandment, beginning with verse 8. You shall not make for yourselves any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments." As we look at the sermon for today, we're going to, first of all, do just a very brief review from last Lord's Day to tie in with what we're addressing today. And then we're going to look at the second. And under the second commandment, we're going to look at verse 8. This week, last week, we looked at verse 9 of the second commandment. This week, we are going to consider verse 8. And under verse 8, we're going to consider a more general use of this particular verse. And then we're going to look at a very specific use in regard to verse 8. And I'm not going to tell you all those uses at this point. Uh, We'll get to that in time but just to try to give you uh, some direction as to where we're going. So first, let's consider very briefly uh, some review from last week. We noted last Lord's Day that in the first commandment, which says, you shall have no other gods before me, God forbids the worship of anything but the one true living God. Now, in the second commandment, God forbids the worship of the one true living God in any false manner. The second commandment is not forbidding the worship of false gods per se. The first commandment prohibits that. The second commandment is expressly forbidding the worship of the the one true living God by means of graven images. That's the distinction between the first commandment and the second commandment. In other words, what God is forbidding in the second commandment is that we are forbidden to worship him by means of all man-made images, man-made inventions or innovations, anything that we would bring into the worship service ourselves, anything that we would think would be a good idea as to how to worship God, we are forbidden from doing so unless God himself authorizes it in his word. We cannot worship God by means of of, uh, our own aids or helps, things that we think would uh, help us to worship him in a more uh, godly manner, would help to increase our devotion, our passion, Before God, we cannot worship Him by means 
of uh, things, uh, though we may have good intentions in using them for that purpose of worshiping God. Good intentions and sincerity are not the grounds upon which we introduce new and novel things into the worship service. We cannot introduce into the worship service that which we believe would make the worship service more spiritual or meaningful or even attractive to people. That would draw in more people. Because this is not our worship service. This is the worship of God Almighty. We have gathered in His presence this day to honor and adore Him. And it is He and He alone who can direct us and command us as to how He deems that he ought to be worshipped. It's not man who decides those kinds of issues. And thus, when God, in the second commandment, forbids worshipping him by means of any graven image, we must not conceive that God simply forbids his people to erect a statue in our presence here, in the middle of the building, that he simply forbids us from falling down before a statue and worshiping him through that statue. But rather, a graven image as we find it in the second commandment. A graven image is any act. Listen carefully. A graven image is any act. It's any gesture. It's any word or any thought or any doctrine or a ritual, or any religious physical representation that God himself has not ordained. Any of those things are excluded. All that we can bring before God is what God has commanded us to bring unto him. That which he has not commanded us to bring unto him, we must leave behind. And in this second commandment, when we read the words that you are not to bow down, nor are you to serve these graven images, again, we ought not to consider that all that is forbidden here is simply, literally, bowing down. But again, that act of bowing down uh, encompasses any act or gesture of religious worship that God has not commanded. And so all of that is forbidden by God's holy word. And I want to make an application to this brief review that I have uh, just given. The Romish church has completely destroyed the distinction between the first and second commandments. I alluded to this last Lord's Day. They have destroyed the uh, distinction, the difference between the first and second commandments by making the first and second commandment one commandment and then making the tenth commandment into two commandments so that they still end up with ten commandments, but they're not the same commandments as the, that which the scripture gives. The Church of Rome interprets the second commandment to essentially be a further elucidation 
of the first commandment rather than being a different commandment altogether. The Church of Rome says that all that is forbidden in the second commandment is worshiping false gods, those false images, establishing some kind of false god and bowing down to it and worshiping it. That's not what the second commandment teaches. That is forbidden, as I said earlier, in the first commandment. In a new catechism of the Catholic faith, I wanted to just read for you very quickly. This is one of their own catechisms. These are the Ten Commandments as they articulate them in Rome. Listen very carefully to see how different, uh, particularly the First Commandment is and, and the Tenth Commandment. I, the Lord, am your God. You shall, not, you shall not have other gods before me. First commandment. Second commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Third commandment. Remember to keep, the whole, the, uh, keep holy the Sabbath day. Fourth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. Fifth commandment. You shall not kill. Sixth, sixth commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Seventh commandment. You shall not steal. Eighth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Ninth commandment, notice these last two. Ninth commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Tenth commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's goods. And so the tenth commandment has been divided into two commandments. What we want to ask, what happened to the second commandment? It was subsumed and under the first commandment. Why have they done this? Well, they might try to show from the text. Turn with me if you're not there already. Look at Deuteronomy 5.21. Deuteronomy 5.21 says, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. The second phrase says, And you shall not desire your neighbor's house. Well, they may argue at that particular point that there's two different words used. One, uh, and it's even noted in the New King James Version, which I've read from, the first word being covet and the second word being desire. The two different words that are used here for covet in the Hebrew language, hamad is the first one, hamad, and the second one, Awa. Awa is the second one. Hamad, translated covet. Awa, translated desire. What they would say is that the ninth and tenth commandments command us, first of all, not to covet our neighbor's wife. Secondly, they the Tenth Commandment commands us not to desire our neighbor's house, etc., etc., all of his, our neighbor's goods. This simply cannot stand up, uh, though, um, as we compare with Exodus chapter 20, where we find the Ten Commandments again enumerated for us. And if you look at Exodus 20, verse 17, there, in Exodus 20:17, you find the words, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, 
you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. The same word, chamath, is used in both cases. There's not a distinction in the words that are used there. It is one commandment. Furthermore, comparing Exodus 20 with Deuteronomy 5, it switches the words around. It says in Exodus 20, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Then it says you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. But in Deuteronomy 5, it says you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Then it says you shall not desire your neighbor's house. Which would mean which is the ninth commandment and which is the tenth commandment. Well, we would say that certainly there's no textual evidence to support the fact that there are two commandments uh, out of that one commandment in verse 21. The reason, the real reason why Rome has uh, basically made the first and second commandment into one commandment, I think should be readily clear to all of us. The reason they have done so is so as to avoid God's condemnation against all man-made images and inventions which they have brought into the worship service. All of the things that have on the basis of the church's authority to implement them, they have brought into the worship service. And this is a very clear condemnation of all of that in, in Deuteronomy 5, 8 through 10. I'm reading one more little excerpt from another catechism book for the Roman Catholic Church. And I'm only doing this to to emphasize something. It's it's I think important to understand where Rome is coming from because as you'll see, Protestantism is headed down the same path. And if we're not careful, if we do not see the direction that Rome is headed, uh, we'll be blindsided. And many already have become blindsided. Under the second commandment in the catechism here. This is entitled Catechism of the Catholic Church. It's a recent catechism, quite, as you can see, quite thick. Um, and on, on the discussion dealing with the second commandment, let me just read to you these words. Nevertheless, already in the Old Testament, God ordained or permitted the making of images that pointed symbolically towards salvation by the incarnate word. They're saying that God permitted the use of images because images pointed to the symbolic or the incarnate word that is Jesus Christ who was to come. So it was with the bronze serpent, the Ark of the Covenant, and the cherubim. Those were images that God very specifically ordained in the Old Testament. Next, it says, basing itself on the mystery of the incarnate word, that is Jesus Christ, the seventh ecumenical council at Nicaea in 787 justified against the iconoclast. Iconoclasts were those uh, people who were against images and actually tore down the images in the churches. They were against the, the pictures and all of the, uh, the various things that the Catholic Church had brought into worship. 
The Council of Nicaea, uh, however, argued against the iconoclasts, against those who were taking the images down. This was the support that they used, that they were doing so in veneration of Christ, in veneration of Christ, but also of the Mother of God, the angels, and all the saints. In other words, the point I want to make there is, where do you draw the line? Again, once you begin to institute images, once you begin to allow graven images into your worship service, uh, where can you, on principle, stop? It simply becomes a matter of taste and preference at that point. They say, by becoming incarnate, the Son of God introduced a new economy of images. Because God himself became man, a new economy of images were instituted into the church. Well, dear ones, I've heard uh, very similar arguments as what I've just read for the use of images and pictures of Christ and of, of images in the worship service by Presbyterians, by Reformed ministers. They have said essentially the same thing. Because Christ was made flesh, because Christ was incarnate, that gives us justification for introducing images of Christ or images into the worship service, banners, crosses, whatever it may be, religious object, objects of veneration and respect. Where does this all lead? Well, there's amongst Protestant and Reformed ministers and theologians today a movement to form a foundation for ecumenical activities and dialogue between Protestants and Roman Catholics. Even men that we have in the past had a great deal of respect for, men like J.I. Packer wrote an article in Christianity Today entitled, Why I Signed It. Why I Signed the document entitled, Evangelicals and Catholics Together. The Christian Mission in the Third Millennium. And he seeks to justify and defend why he signed this document. Let me simply read for you uh, just one brief paragraph to show you the direction that here uh, someone who professes to be reformed has uh, how far he has gone. He says, first, do we recognize that good evangelical Protestants and good Roman Catholics, good I mean in terms of their own church's stated ideal of spiritual life, are Christians together? We ought to recognize this, for this is true. I am a Protestant who thanks God for the wisdom, backbone, maturity of mind and conscience, and above all, love for my Lord Jesus Christ that I, that I often see among Catholics, and who sometimes 
has the joy of hearing Catholics say they see comparable fruits of grace in Protestants. But I am not the only one who is thus made aware that evangelicals and Catholics who actively believe are Christians together. The drafters of ECT, that is Evangelicals and Catholics Together, this document, the drafters of this document declare that they accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, affirm the Apostles' Creed, are justified by grace through faith because of Christ, understand the Christian life from first to last as personal conversion to Jesus Christ and communion with Him, know that they must teach and live in obedience to divinely inspired scriptures which are infallible, the infallible Word of God, and on this basis are brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I'm not about to say that it's impossible for one who is yet in the Church of Rome to be a Christian who has not yet left the Church of Rome. But this document goes far beyond that. As you read the justification, as you read the document itself, it's making proclamations about things that we hold in common with Rome, which we cannot, which the Protestant Reformation was fought which uh, fought over which uh, over which issues uh, Protestants suffered and died thousands upon thousands of Protestants over these very issues. We cannot give way to the whole system of Rome. Dear ones, I submit to you that unless we are willing to stand firmly in the ranks of our Reformed forefathers who saw that the first step of compromise toward Rome is compromise in the area of worship, the area of graven images, if we do not recognize that we will be standing someday side by side in other areas. If we follow Rome in principle, that we allow graven images into the church, maybe we would say we don't go to the extreme that they go, but in principle, if we allow graven images into the church, if we allow banners, if we allow uh, crosses, if we allow uh, any religious symbol that God has not authorized or ordained into the worship of God, it won't be long till we are uh, standing side by side. We're not dealing here with some mere trifle, some insignificant matter when we talk about the second commandment, dear ones. For God says very clearly in verse 9 of Deuteronomy 5, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God's a jealous husband. He will not be worshipped by means of anything which he has not ordained. He is rightfully jealous for pure worship. Not only worship outwardly and externally, but worship of the heart. And I did not uh, make these words up. It is God himself 
who spoke from Mount Sinai and said that those who worship him by means of images, graven images brought into the worship of God, he says, hate him. That is what God says in verse 9. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But those who love him, those who worship him as he has commanded, he declares in verse 10 that he would show mercy to thousands of generations, to those who love him and keep his commandments. As we consider the second main point, uh, that of the second commandment, and we're going to focus our attention upon the eighth verse now, we considered last Lord's Day how God has divided the second commandment into actually two separate commands. In verse 9, we have God forbidding all will worship. You're not to worship me by means of images, by means of anything that you would institute as human beings. That's what's forbidden in verse 9. You're not to bow down to them, nor are you to serve them. But in verse 8, God forbids not only the bowing down to them, not only the honoring and the veneration that, that people give to the images, but God even forbids in the 8th verse the making of these images that are used for worship. Because many evangelicals would say the cross that may be behind the pastor or the banners that may be on the wall. We don't bow down to them. We don't genuflect before them. We don't cross ourselves before them or give them any special kind of outward reverence. In other words, they would say, we don't do what verse 9 says that we're not to do. We don't bow down to them, nor do we serve them. But dear ones, verse 8 says that you should not even make them. You shall not make for yourself any carved image. In Calvin's commentary on this section of the Decalogue, Calvin asserts that the prohibition against images voiced in the Second Commandment contains two distinct injunctions. The first, in verse 8, prohibits the making of any graven image or any such likeness. And the second injunction forbids, in verse 9, the payment of honor to any of these that Calvin calls phantoms or delusive shows. Thus God, very clearly, dear ones, prohibits not only the reverential acts toward images, verse 9, but he also prohibits even the making of any image in worship not authorized by Scripture. And so this becomes, under the second commandment, I've got two sub-points that I want to make. 
Under the second commandment, in looking at verse 8, the first sub-point is that this has a general, general reference to image-making. A general reference to image-making. This commandment forbids all image-making that we would bring into the worship service, whether we bow down to it or not. <clears throat> and I have listed already some examples of images that might be brought into a place of worship as crosses, a crucifix, banners of religious symbols on them, stained glass windows with religious symbols within them, uh, religious pictures or paintings that might be hung upon the wall, or statues of any kind. God herein, this eighth verse, forbids all religious images in worship. He does not forbid all religious art in general. He does not forbid us from being able to even... Uh, 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 form or create, uh, draw a picture of a uh, biblical incident that we might use, uh, say, in a, uh, uh, a Bible story book or something like that for our children. He forbids explicitly the bringing in of images into place of worship. And worshiping God according to or uh, having those images before God's people. And so it's not, as we read ver through verse 8, it's not the making of a bird or star in a sketch that's forbidden. It's not the portrait of a family, family member that's forbidden or the photograph of the Grand Canyon that's forbidden but the use of any religious symbol in worship that is forbidden. Historically, quite interesting, Philip Schaff, that eminent church historian, has noted, and I, I quote at this point, from the private recesses of Christian homes and catacombs, artistic representations of holy things passed into public churches in the fourth century. But under protest, which continued for a long time and gave rise to the violent image controversies which were not settled until the Second Council of Nicaea in 787 in favor of a limited image worship, the Spanish Council of Elvira in Granada in 306 raised such a protest and prohibited in the 36th canon pictures in the church lest the objects of veneration and worship should be depicted on the walls. And so there was, as we read historically, there were not these images. There were no pictures. There were no symbols in the places where God's people gathered in worship until the 4th century. And when that first came into being, there was an uproar. There were image controversies that raged throughout the church. 
And the example of that given here is in 306, uh, the Spanish Council of Elvira. Thus it would appear from historical reflection that for the first 300 years of the church, no religious images appeared in worship. Christ, you'll search in vain to find Christ instituting images or religious symbols in a worship service. The apostles did not institute such religious symbols into the worship service. Nor did the church fathers for the first 200 years institute images into worship. Let's just take one very sacred, uh, today anyway, one very sacred symbol, and that is the cross. Certainly, we who are believers in Jesus Christ consider the fact that Jesus gave his life upon the cross to be one of the most sacred thoughts. He died in our place. He died for us that we might be set free from our sins and know God. But did God himself institute that the cross itself should be used to remind us of that truth? The actual image of a cross in a worship service. Let's just focus our attention upon that application. We could talk about others, but I think this will probably stir up enough... uh, Uh, controversy uh, as these tapes uh, circulate Uh, the cross the cross was the earliest religious symbol to be used in worship according to Philip Schaff again that noted church historian he furthermore notes to what the religious symbol led to in worship now in quoting Schaff here He has no axe to grind uh, from our perspective because he endorses the use of these particular images, some of these images. He does not take the position we do. So he certainly is not citing these references uh, to to, uh, prove our case at all. But those are the facts. As a good historian, he must cite the facts. Let me simply read to you um, what he says with regard to the cross. The first symbol of the crucifixion was the cross alone. But notice what follows. Then followed the cross and the lamb. Either the lamb with the cross on the head or shoulder or the lamb fastened on the cross. Then the figure of Christ in connection with the cross. Either Christ holding it in his right hand or Christ with the cross in the background. At last, Christ nailed to the cross. You see where one thing leads to the next. And in principle, if it goes to the extreme How can those who are using the cross itself criticize those who have carried the abuse a little bit further? In principle, you cannot criticize them. You cannot condemn them in principle. (coughs) 
Now I know from personal experience that in a previous pastorate of mine, I permitted, along with our elders, a cross to be put up uh, within our church. And then, soon after, followed banners on the wall. And upon, I remember very distinctly, upon two of those banners were representations, one of Jesus Christ as a lamb upon a cross. And upon another banner was a representation of the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descending. And so I know how all too prone we are as human beings once we allow these things into the worship of God not to stop there. But one abuse to build upon the other until we find ourselves not only in principle in Rome's camp but in practice in Rome's camp. You see, if there's not the issue of principle that we will only allow in a worship service what God commands, then it is left up to simply our taste and our preferences. That's what you have to fall back on. But you may hear the objections coming from the Romish church and perhaps from uh, evangelicals and from even some Reformed people. What do we say about the symbols God himself instituted in the Old Testament? What about all of those symbols? Does that not set a precedent for us to be able to use symbols in worship today? For example, in the Holy of Holies and over the mercy seat, were two cherubim. In Exodus 25, you'll find that. There were pomegranates, according to Second Chronicles 3.16, and oxen, according to Second Chronicles 4.3, in the temple. The priests had very ornate garments. The high priest had a breastplate, beautiful breastplate, an ephod upon which the breastplate hung, a mitre, colorful robes, and on and on and on we could go. The Ark of the Covenant, the candlesticks, the altar of incense, the table of showbread, the showbread itself, many, many images. What do we say with regard to that? Furthermore, didn't God also authorize the making and looking upon a bronze serpent while the children of Israel were yet in the wilderness? Having rebelled against God, God sent the fiery serpents to, to smite them and God told Moses to, to make for the people a bronze serpent. Well, all of the above are true. God did, in fact, authorize and institute all of those things. And that's the exact point that I want to make. God did authorize them. God did command those specific items of 
furniture, those specific images to be instituted himself. It wasn't the, the whim of a man that said, this is really going to help us to worship more sincerely. Let's institute this into the worship service. God himself declared what should be instituted in that old covenant worship. Dear ones, one simply cannot miss the number of times God specifically declares that all that was included in the tabernacle was done according to the commandment of God, according to the pattern which God showed Moses while Moses was on Mount Sinai. I'm going to just run through uh, uh, quite a few passages here. I'm not going to, uh, I'm just very quickly, but I want to impress upon you the weightiness of this, that God, how many times he emphasizes that they were doing all that they did according to his commandment, not according to their own will. I'm going to begin in Exodus 25. Exodus 25.9 says, According to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it, God told Moses. Verse 40 of the same chapter. God says, And see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Chapter 26, verse 30. And you shall raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern which you were shown on the mountain. Chapter 27, verse 8. You shall make it hollow with boards as it was shown you on the mountain. So shall they make it. 29, verse 35. Thus you shall do to Aaron and his sons according to all that I have commanded you. 31, chapter 31, verse 6. <clears throat> and I indeed, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahishamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have put wisdom in the hearts of all who are gifted artisans, that they may make all that I have commanded you. Verse 11. And the anointing oil and sweet incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. Chapter 35, verse 10. All who are skillful among you shall come and make all that the Lord has commanded. Verse 29 of the same chapter. The children of Israel brought a free will offering to the Lord, all the men and women whose hearts were willing to bring material for all kinds of work which the Lord, by the hand of Moses, had commanded to be done. Chapter 36, verse 1. And Bezalel and Aholiab and every gifted artisan in whom the Lord has put wisdom and understanding to know how to do all the manner of work for the service of the sanctuary shall do according to all that the Lord has commanded. Chapter 38, verse 22. This is the inventory of the tabernacle, the tabernacle, the testimony, which was counted according to the commandment of Moses for the service of the Levites by the hand of Ithamar, son of Aaron, the priest. Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Chapter 39, verse 1. <clears throat> 
Of the blue and purple and scarlet thread, they made garments of ministry for ministering in the holy place and made the holy garments for Aaron as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse, uh, verse 5. And the intricately woven band of his ephod that was on it was of the same workmanship, woven of gold and blue and purple and scarlet thread and fine linen thread as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 7. He put them on the shoulders of the ephod that they should be stones for a memorial for the sons of Israel as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 21. You see what I mean? Uh, we're, we've got a few more to go through, but I, I'm, I'm going to finish all of them just because I want you to get the weight of what God is saying throughout the construction of His house and place for worship. Verse 21. And they bound the breastplate by means of its rings to the rings of the ephod with a blue cord so that it would be above the intricately woven band of the ephod and that the breastplate would not come loose from the ephod as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 26. Verse 25 says, And they made bells of pure gold and put the bells between the pomegranates on the hem of the robe all around between the pomegranates and a bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate all around the hem of the robe to minister in as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 31. Actually, verse 29. And it speaks there of a sash of fine linen and blue and purple and scarlet thread woven as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then it speaks of the mitre, written uh, upon the mitre, holiness to the Lord. And they tied it to a blue cord to fasten it above on the turban as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 32. Thus all the work of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, was finished. And the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. Verse 42. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did all the work. Verse 43. Then Moses looked over all the work, and indeed they had done it as the Lord had commanded, just so they had done it. Chapter 40, verse 16. Just a few more now. This is the last chapter. But there are several in this chapter as well. Chapter 40, verse 16. Thus Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him, so he did. Verse 19. And he spread out the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent on top of it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 21. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and hung up the veil of the covering and partitioned off the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 23. And he set the bread in order upon it before the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 25. And he lit the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 27. And he burned sweet incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 29. And he put the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered upon it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses. And then finally, in verse 32, when they went into the tabernacle of meeting, and when they came near the altar, they washed as the Lord had commanded Moses. How much 
How much, I ask you, was left up to the innovation and invention of men in either the worship of God or either in the architecture and the construction of what went on in the place of worship? Nothing. As the Lord commanded, so it was done. And the same is true of the bronze serpent in Numbers 21.8. God specifically commanded them to construct that bronze serpent. It wasn't something that Moses thought would be a good idea for the people to look upon this serpent. That was at the direct commandment of God. So where is the authorization... Where is the command from God then, based on what we have learned in the Old Testament, that they needed an authorization, a command, to do whatever they did in worship? Where is the authorization from God to place a cross within a church? Or to put up a banner? Or any other religious symbol in the church? God has given us two symbols. And He's made it very clear. He's commanded us to use water and baptism and to use bread and wine in the Lord's Supper. Those are the two authorized symbols that God has commanded in His new covenant. But nothing else has been commanded. We do not have, as mere human beings, as creatures, the right to impose our will upon the Almighty Creator and God with regard to worship. I would in fact say that if somebody argues that they are permitted to use symbols today, other than those two that I mentioned, baptism and Lord's Supper, if they argue that they are permitted to use symbols, I would say to them, then you must use all the symbols that God ordained and set forth in the Old Testament. You cannot deviate from those, which would basically take us back then to Judaism, to worshiping God under the Old Covenant, which the book of Hebrews says has been done away with because a new covenant has come. What God commands we must do in worship what he is silent concerning, we must not do in worship, because that is to make a graven image. The second response that I have to that, to that objection, why or what do we say about all the symbols that God himself instituted in the Old Testament? One more response that I would have is that all those religious symbols were part of the Old Covenant worship which passed away with the institution of the new covenant through Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. John chapter 4, Jesus spoke to the woman of Samaria, and he said there's coming a time when we'll worship neither at that mountain, Mount Gerizim, nor at this mountain, the temple in Jerusalem. There's coming a time when those who worship God will worship him in spirit and in truth. Their worship will be characterized not by all of the ceremonies and all of the symbols that were characterized in the Old Testament. Be characterized 
spirit and in truth. And it's still only characterized by what God commands, not by what man wills. Therefore, dear ones, we must have new covenant sanction in order to use anything in worship. Because the temple, the priesthood, have all been done away with. All of those symbols, we are left with two symbols. The Lord's Supper and Baptism. Now, I've looked at the general reference that that commandment, Deuteronomy 5.8, has to do with very generally that there are not to be instituted any images in general into worship. But I want to just very uh, briefly at the end of the sermon to also point out to you that there is a very specific application of this as well. Not only in general are images not to be brought into worship, but this commandment also speaks of the prohibition against image-making with regard to any likeness of any member of the Godhead, Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, we are not to make images of God. This particular commandment prohibits all likenesses of God as well. Now, the actual commentary on Deuteronomy 5.8 where it says you shall not make for yourself any carved image the commentary for that is in the previous chapter that we read earlier from Deuteronomy chapter 4 I want you to see the structure here I pointed out that there are two commandments in, in, the, in the second commandment you shall not make for yourself any carved image the second command you shall not bow down to them nor serve them that's exactly the structure that we find in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 15. First of all, it says, Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make. That's, that correlates with verse 8, chapter 5. Lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any beast that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. And then in verse 19, chapter 4, verse 19, we find the second part of the second commandment mentioned here. And take heed lest you lift up your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and moon and stars and all the hosts of heaven, you feel driven to notice worship them, and serve them. So here you find both of those commandments. Now, because the structure is parallel between chapter 4, verses 18 through 19, or chapter 4, verses 15 through 19, and that's parallel with Deuteronomy 5, verses 8 through 10, let me simply make some observations for you very quickly. In chapter, 5, uh, chapter 4, verse 15, notice, what is the reason given for not making for yourself a carved image? What is the reason given? This is the reason given. 
Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form. When the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, why are you not to make an image of God? Because God did not reveal himself to you from Sinai in an image. Notice what verse 12 says, chapter 4, verse 12. And the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, but saw no form. You only heard a voice. And so God very clearly, I believe, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 8, because that is parallel to Deuteronomy 4, verse 15, is saying very specifically, you're not to make any image of God. That doesn't mean that you're only prohibited from bringing an image of God into the worship service, but you're not to make any image of God, period, to hang up on your wall, in your house. To uh, have in a book which you read to your children. Certain images are fine and appropriate in that kind of a situation, but not an image of God, either Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. The Hebrew scholars Kyle and Dalich make that same observation that I have just made to you about the significance of the word that is given in the second commandment. Notice what they say. They say, Moses lays stress upon the command not to make to themselves an image in the form of any sculpture and gives this as the reason, for you saw no form in the day when Jehovah spoke to you at Horeb. And then they say, it is not only evident from the context that the allusion is not to, making, not to the making of images generally, but to the construction of figures of God as objects of religious reverence or worship. And so, here... In Deuteronomy 5.8, we find not only a, a reference, a prohibition to image making and bringing it into the worship service, but specifically prohibition against making all images of Christ, of the Holy Spirit, of the Father. <clears throat> As God's people renewed their covenant vows here in Deuteronomy chapter 5, dear ones, before entering into Canaan, God gave to them what he considered to be extremely important. He didn't give to them something that was, was of little, in, a little significance. He demonstrated the importance of what he was saying by the awesome display, the fire, the earth shaking, the lightning, and everything that occurred at that time. He told them that this was a momentous day. They were to wash themselves. They were not to touch the mountain, lest they die. But he did not reveal himself in any physical form that they could see. He simply spoke forth 
And on that basis, God says, you are not to make any likeness of me in any human form, any form of a bird, flies in the heaven, anything in the sea, anything at all. Now, why is that the case? Dear ones, you could sooner paint the entire universe on a canvas than you could paint a picture of God. For God says that the heavens and the earth that he created cannot even contain him. A visible representation that man makes limits the unlimited God. It does not picture him in all of his glory. It lies concerning God. A picture lies concerning the infinite God. It does not teach man. It deceives man. See, that's one of the arguments that's used by evangelicals, by Roman Catholics that we're teaching man by visualizing God. No, it doesn't teach man. It deceives man. It distorts who God is. It forms a God of our own imagination. Not the one true living God who is infinite. The one who is unlimited. Who has no boundaries. As soon as you can put something down on a canvas, you have limited it. God has no limitations. Isaiah 40, verse 18 says, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to Him? Question. To whom will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to Him? The obvious answer is nothing. Absolutely nothing. run out of time, I'm going to have to continue uh, this, uh, this sermon uh, until uh, our next time we meet because I want to spend, I've got uh, more material, I want to spend some time talking about uh, images as they relate to Jesus Christ. Do we have the right, because Jesus Christ appeared as a man he was God incarnate, God in the flesh. Do we have the right, therefore, to make pictures or images of Christ? Well, we want to consider that next time. But this time, as I said, we have run out of time. Dear ones, as we conclude uh, the sermon today, it ought to bring us great joy, the fact that we cannot confine our God to a picture. It ought to cause us to be greatly humbled before the Lord God. The fact that He is so mighty, He is so great, that He has no limitations and boundaries. That's a God I can go to when everything seems hopeless. That's a God I can go to when I'm beside myself and I don't know where else to turn. Because He's not confined to my little time reference. He's not confined and all wrapped up in my little problems. He's outside the problem. And he can bring healing and he can bring a remedy if we're obedient, if we follow his commandments. 
And this is of most importance, dear ones. You shall make no graven image. You shall not bow down and you shall not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting upon the fathers to the third and fourth generation the iniquity of the fathers of all those who hate me but pouring forth my blessings to thousands of generations to those who love me and keep my commandments let's pray our heavenly father indeed you are great and mighty and we are finite creatures who live but a very short time upon this earth who are like the grass that sprouts up and grows and tomorrow is passed away but O oh God you are the everlasting God you are from eternity unto eternity you have no beginning and you have no end O oh, Father, help us to realize this day because you cannot be confined to a statue, because your glory cannot be captured in a picture, that that gives us great hope and faith in bringing the largest possible requests that we might have to a king who has no limitations, who is all-sufficient to meet our needs. Bless your people this day, dear Father. Minister to them your grace through Christ our Savior. Amen.
This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A capital B, Canada, T six L three T five. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.